The Kingdom Roots podcast is brought to you today by the upcoming Northern Live online event on May 10th. Northern Live is Northern Seminary's new online learning platform that allows students to engage in a vibrant classroom experience and dialogue with our premier professors from anywhere in the world. If you are interested in learning more about live streaming seminary, then join us for a live web demonstration on May 10th. Registration and more info for this event can be found at seminary.edu live. Again, that's seminary.edu slash live. Welcome to the Kingdom Roots podcast with Scott McKnight, the conversation designed to look at how the kingdom took root then and how it's taking root now. Today for our episode, we're going to be talking about Jesus and the table. Scott, you know, you know, as we look at Jesus's ministry and his life, one of the central elements in really all of the Gospels are Jesus's meals that he had with followers. In fact, I even once heard uh, somebody explain that, you know, Jesus really could have been killed simply by who he ate with, that his meals were, were that important, that is significant in his ministry. And, and I just kind of, you know, curious what you think about that statement, if it's true. Well, I think it is. Um, it's clever. And it's evocative, and it makes Jesus look so good and so progressive uh, and so compassionate when everybody else isn't. So this is a way of setting up Jesus over against others, and it makes Jesus look really good. And I would say that it is mostly accurate. Jesus clearly connected himself with people in the first century that normal religious experts, uh, whether you want to talk about Essenes uh, down at the Qumran community and maybe in Jerusalem, uh, whether you want to talk about some Sadducees um, or whether you want to talk about Pharisees who for the Gospels seemed to be ubiquitous but probably weren't as per uh, standing around on street corners as much as people might think. Uh, but in general, if you take a look at the, that group of people who would mark themselves out as religious experts because they are particularly vigilant and rigorous in their observance of the Torah, and therefore also, for some of them, uh, observant of traditional interpretations of the Torah, then I would say that Jesus ate with people those people didn't like He ate with people those people thought he shouldn't eat with. So, for instance, in Luke's gospel, um, you're a prophet. You you should know who this woman is who is anointing your feet. Well, this this is Jesus being associated with in an evening uh, at a Pharisee's home with someone who should not uh, be touching Jesus should not be acting this way with Jesus. And there is a famous statement uh, in Matthew chapter 11, verse 19, that I think is important for Bible readers to understand in its context. When uh, when Jesus uh, is comparing himself to John the Baptist, he basically says, he's saying depressing sad, mournful music, and you didn't cry, 
and I sing happy music and you don't dance. And he said, then he said this, the son of man, and this is his self-reference, came eating and drinking. Now, this is a, a standard reference to mealtimes. And they say, here is a glutton and a drunkard. So here's somebody who eats too much and drinks too much. So this is an accusation. And then they pull out, uh, this is a, a pulling out that glutton and drunkard is from the Old Testament. So it's kind of standard accusation at a legal level of a rebellious son. Then they say he's a friend of tax collectors and sinners. This is a reference to the fact that Jesus ate with people whom these religious leaders, particularly Pharisees, who and they thought that these people were unworthy and unclean at some level, and therefore you should not be eating with them because uh, uh, eating it, meant, yeah. It, it, it meant shares we, life. Yeah, it would break the Torah if they were to eat together in their view. Okay, yeah, yes, but there's something else here that's pretty important. Yeah. When, when you and I eat today, uh, most of us eat in our homes. Now, we sometimes eat in restaurants. Uh, or even eat, in our car. On the road. In our car, that's right. We eat that way. But let's just say your standard meal at home. Uh, when you invite someone to your home and act in hospitality, this is an act of vulnerability. Uh, and some of us do it so often that it's not that big a deal. But we, we invite people to our table is to bring them into our own home and bring them into our inner sanctum. And it is to bring them into our life in a special way. Meals in the first century were more symbolic than they are in our world. Because meals are easier to participate in. In the first century, particularly for the religious observant in the Jewish world, to eat with someone was, to, at some level, it was to approve of them as worthy covenant members in your world. So I often use this statement that, and I think it's an overstatement, but it illustrates my point that Pharisees said, clean yourself up or be clean and you can eat with me. So in other words, you had to be worthy of a Pharisee's table to be able to eat with them. Jesus said, eat with me and I will make you clean. Now, even if that gives a little bit of a stereotype of both Pharisees and Jesus, I'm sure Jesus probably had some restrictions and the Pharisees probably had some openness. Uh, after all, there's a, a sinful woman in a Pharisee's home. Yeah. The, the point would be this, is that the Pharisees looked at a table, observant Jews looked at a table and saw a symbolic world, that this was a world that expressed approval. And Jesus looked at this world and said, this is the place where approval is going to begin. That is why Jesus is criticized for his practice of table fellowship. Uh, let me let me give you another passage. It's in Matthew chapter 9. It's a fascinating passage. Jesus went on from there and he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth and he said, follow me. And Matthew got up and followed him. And this is where this is where first century meal practices take all of a sudden become real. Mm -hmm. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, now this is a tax collector. Jesus is in a tax collector's house. Tax collectors are symbolic of Rome's invasion of the Jewish world 
and uh, filching money off of people. They, they resisted and resented all the taxation from Rome. Many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with Jesus and his disciples. Now, this is where the, the tension arises. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? That's the question about Jesus and, and the table fellowship. And Jesus' response is, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but mm -hmm. the sick. Go and learn. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. So Jesus created, I, I, I like to put it this way, Chaz. Jesus created a kingdom society at the table every evening. And it was radical. It was a bit chaotic. It was a bit random. It had loose edges and people wondered what was going on. And it wasn't all intentional. Some of the wrong people showed up and came away with the wrong ideas. But at, nonetheless, Jesus wanted to open the table to those who were marginalized and rejected in Galilee and in Judea. And in so doing, he offered to his environment an alternative kingdom society being embodied at the table. Yeah, you know, I love that you bring up the Matthew passage. And, uh, you know, where I'm a, a pastor at is Parkview Christian Church. And this is one of our senior pastor's favorite passages. And he uses it and explains how like, you know, Jesus was at a naughty people's party. And that it was, as you kind of explained, you know, he saw the table fellowship and eating with others as an opportunity to bring light into darkness, to, to you know, enter into people's lives in a way where you could approve of them for, for who they are and, and their creation, but also, like you said, a, a kingdom ulterior society that took root in these meals and around the table and, and transformation happened. And, and that's evident, you know, as you, yeah. you read the, the scriptures and you read who Jesus ate with and what he got associated with being a glutton and a, a tax collector, that was because that's the people he was hanging out with, and that's the people he he was eating with. And um, man, I think that's challenging even for us anytime in all of church history, um, but even today. And um, you know, who are we spending our time with? Who who are, are we having around our table um, to bring the kingdom reality? Yeah, and I think that's life? exactly how Jesus lived. He intended, mm -hmm. uh, in a sense, he he is not. We got to believe this. He was not one bit surprised when people got irritated with the people who ate with him. Mm -hmm. So we have to believe that Jesus did this intentionally, and we have to then think that Jesus did it provocatively. Mm -hmm. He was provoking people to ask, why does your, you know, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Oh, by golly, they said, we've never thought about this. Mm -hmm. You know, or Jesus said, oh, I had no idea that people would be critical of me. This, yeah. is, this is something Jesus knew exactly what yeah. happened. And so he did it intentionally. He did it provocatively. He did it symbolically. So they would ask that question. You know, the great parable that we all learned, the parable of the prodigal son, mm -hmm. arose from a table fellowship situation when he was asked why Jesus is eating with tax collectors and sinners, he wants to say is because this is where God is demonstrating his grace and his embrace of people whom you people are rejecting. 
So it's a particularly prophetic, provocative act whereby Jesus embodies and symbolizes uh, what, you know, what he's trying to do. Now, let, let me bring up another one. Uh, I think this is largely ignored. Peter gets this vision in Acts chapter 10 that, and he's praying and about noon and he becomes hungry and he saw heaven open and something like a large sheet being let down to earth by its four corners. It contained what, uh, you know, uh, unclean, right? Yeah, this is, it contained all kinds of four footed animals as well as reptiles and birds. Then a voice told Peter, get up, Peter, kill and eat. Now, this is important because this is what Peter says. Surely not, Lord. I have never eaten anything impure or unclean. Now, that means Peter has lived an entirely kosher life when it comes to food laws. But God is saying to him symbolically, I want you to eat these Four foot. It, it's whatever you know. However you want to describe it, this is for Peter. This is non-kosher food. So let's just say it's pork, and Peter is being told to eat a piece of bacon and pork barbecue. Mm-hmm. And Peter, of course, is is quoting the Bible in a sense back at God, and the voice spoke to him a second time: "Do not call anything impure that God has made clean." All right, now, so this is Peter's launching by the work of God into the opportunity to preach the gospel to Cornelius, who's a Gentile, who will be, in a sense, the first open door into the Gentile world for the gospel. Mm -hmm. So this is sort of a symbolic act. You eat this food and you preach the gospel to Gentiles. And later in the chapter, when Peter preaches this, he's, he's dumbfounded with other Jewish believers that these Gentiles have received the Holy Spirit as they have. All right, so let's just take that as an example that Peter learned from Jesus on a daily basis to embrace people who normally weren't embraced, but Peter still had to learn this in a new way for Gentiles. Now we skip ahead to Galatians chapter 2, and this is the incident where Peter is in a, a borderland uh, issue. Uh, he's in he's in Antioch, and many people think this is on the far edge of of the Holy Land. All right, so let, we could take that. When Cephas came to Antioch, Paul says, I opposed him to his face. He stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he used to eat with Gentiles, but when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jewish believers, probably, joined him in his hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. Think about this. Here's a man who grows up with Jesus uh, in his theological and spiritual development in Galilee, embodying and demonstrating daily how to embrace people at the table. He has a visionary experience from God to embrace Gentiles, and he preaches the gospel to Cornelius, and he wants him to be baptized. But this Peter is still struggling with the tension with Gentiles, sitting at table with Gentiles, and probably eating the sort of food that Gentiles ate. So 
this is this is not something like oh this is just a little lesson you have to learn when you go off to seminary yeah. or, or learn in visitation at mm-hmm. a hospital mm-hmm. this is a profoundly difficult uh lifestyle yeah. change to embrace and peter has to learn the hard way he gets supernatural nudges to move forward and he does very gently uh, like you know, like our our dog Webster used to walk into wet grass one foot at a time because it was painful to his little feet. This this was Peter. He did not like this idea, but he learned over time that in the people of God there's going to be Jews and Gentiles, and they embodied this at the table. That's where we prove to the world that we are kingdom people. Yeah. And I think, you know, it, it, it's important in that to acknowledge the messiness of you know, what is, you know, kingdom reality in the opportunity that we have to invite everybody to the table and to acknowledge that it is going to be difficult. You know, like you said, for Peter, it was difficult because it was a, a change of mindset of, of what is okay and how I follow God. Um, and, and same thing for us, you know, when we eat with people like Jesus ate with people, it forces us to oftentimes be uncomfortable in who yeah. we're sitting around the table with and, and to be able to be okay with the messiness and embrace it as Jesus did, I think um, makes us a lot more like Jesus and really empowers God to do some incredible things through those situations. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. So I would be curious um, to, for us to dig down a little bit more into the, you know, really the experience of a first century meal. You know, what was it like, you know, like, you know, you said today, we have this, um, when we invite somebody over and we have this level of vulnerability that we open ourselves up to. Um, and I envision it, um, you know, you're sitting around the dinner table and we have chairs and tables and, you know, we pass around the food. Um, you know, what was that experience like when somebody would, you know, enter somebody's home, the invitation? What are some of those first century cultural elements that might be helpful for us to understand mealtime in, in the New Testament? Yeah, well, let's just say this to begin with, even if it's a lot different than the way we do things today, it was normal for them. And so there wasn't anything odd about it. Uh, They did not have tables. Mm -hmm. Uh, They would have, uh, they they may have had different places where they could set food. They didn't have paper plates. They had pottery. They had bowls. Uh, They didn't have silverware, by and large. Instead, they would have, let's say, a bowl of maybe of, of a grain. Uh, they may have had a bowl of some rices. Uh, they may have had lentils. They would have used uh, bread as a typical, uh, what we would call a sop. Uh, they, um, I, I'm not sure all that you would uh, like me to say, but I mean, they didn't. They as a it depends on where you live. Let's just say you live where Peter lives. And Peter lives on the north side of the Sea of Galilee. Well, because we know from John chapter 21 uh, what breakfast was like, they probably ate fish uh, two meals a day. Yeah. They did not have uh, deficiency in that sense in meat. Mm-hmm. They did not probably have cattle. They weren't eating beef. Uh, they could have been eating lamb. They could have been eating goat. Uh, they 
but by and large, uh, meat was for special occasions, a big feast, Passover, obviously, uh, Yom Kippur, uh, they went Rosh Hashanah, you know, they could have big meals on those sorts of things. And maybe a celebration because something happened, somebody's birthday, somebody's wedding, they could have meat. But by and large, uh, the first century Galilean, let's say Jesus grows up in Nazareth, and it's going to take, you know, um, I suppose a man could get there in a day, uh, uh, a woman who is physically fit and young, a man who's physically fit and young uh, could get there in a day, I, th I think if they really took off, but mm. probably uh, it would take a couple days. So fish would not be as abundant up in the, uh, you know, up in Nazareth. But anywhere near the water, they're going to have fish. Mm -hmm. They're going to have grains. They're going to have grapes um, for drinking. They did not drink water as much as we would drink water. They did not have clean water the way we have clean water. If there's a brook, uh, if there's a, a stream, if there's a river, they could have fresh wa you know, water that way. Mm -hmm. um, they also learned to use cisterns. And one of the geniuses of first century uh, that we've discovered about the first century. It wasn't just the first century, but if you go to Jerusalem today, or you go to Qumran, or you go to Herodian, uh, or you go to any of these places uh, that are official, you can see that Jews of the first century geniusly learned how to uh, save every drop of water that they could possibly save when it rained hard. Mm. And water ran into cisterns. And they have cisterns that hold 10 and 30,000 gallons of water, a huge cisterns yeah. uh, carved into the ground. And so they, they had some water like that uh, and, and they could drink that. But by and large, the average Jew would have uh, drunk for meals, would have they would have uh, what, you know, very uh, watered down wine. And at times they had barley beer. Uh, sometimes in the Old Testament, we see the expression, uh, a strong drink. Uh, we now, uh, from what I can tell of the archaeologists, are convinced that this is a reference to what we would today call beer. Hmm. So it was fermented barley, a fermented grain, uh, and that would have been called a strong drink. So they had those sorts of drinks at times. They had wine as a general rule. We know Nazareth had, we have discovered uh, uh, first century Nazareth's uh, wine press machines where people walked and squeezed grapes, uh, walked on top of them, and then the, the juices would have flowed out. And, and we, have, we have exactly where it was going on in the first century. Huh. Uh, so we've seen these things. So yeah. that's the sort of thing they drank. And um, what about like the conversation and, you know, the, the, the dialogue back and forth that would have been yeah, normal perfect. in a meal time? Good question. And here, here's what we would know. Uh, they did not have TV. They did not have radio. Uh, if you live in Nazareth, you do not even have access to a theater, mm. uh, an outdoor theater. But you could walk over to Sepphoris. Uh, which and see uh, actual performances if, if that theater existed in the first century, maybe one in Tiberias, but Capernaum, no, so, so far as I know. So the evening was for families. 
these are not big towns. These are kids playing in the courtyard, kids playing outside, moms and dads talking to one another, mm-hmm. fathers and fathers and fathers and adult males gathering together, kibitzing about the law, kibitzing about life, complaining about Herod the Great. Moms talking to one another about the things that they did, and it was a more segregated society. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I would say they sat around in the evening and talked and played family games and uh, told stories and learned from one another. They didn't sit around and read. They didn't look at their iPhones, their iPads, their computers. They didn't watch the Cubs. They, you know, they didn't have any of our modern distractions. Yeah. Imagine going to a church camp that basically the only utility it has is electricity. Mm-hmm. And um, that was like my church camp growing up. Yeah, that's <laughs> mine as well. And the, let's just say even the outdoor uh, amphitheater, whatever you had, didn't have electricity either. So if you were out there talking, uh, the night came upon you and you continued to talk in dusk and as it got dark and then you would walk home in familiar on familiar paths and maybe have a candle to carry so you could see and they sat around and talked and told stories and it was a storytelling culture yeah that's good one other thing I'm curious about with meals, um, and you know, Jesus tells some instruction to his disciples uh, about um, not jockeying for the seat of honor in uh, you know mealtime when you're invited over. Um, seems like you know he's indicating levels of social awareness and and ranking almost in social situations like that. Um, you tell us more a little bit about that that background. You know what he may be referring to. You know, yeah. instruction and and that experience with meals. Jesus really uh, scorched the elites in their desire to be given the highest seats at banquets, mm-hmm. and that is you know the host, uh, the most the person with the highest status would be at the most prominent place at a table in the middle or the head of the table. And then people who who wanted to be seen as somebodies would want to sit close to that sort of person. And Jesus uses this customary ranking of people, and we know this happened at Qumran, uh, even by the way they walked in for meals. I mean, hmm. the most important people uh, got to have the most important seats. And the lowliest, most recent converts I uh, got to sit at the end and the farthest away from those who mattered the most. So Jesus tells a story in Luke's gospel of, you know, when, when you go to a banquet, choose the lowest possible seat mm-hmm. so that when someone comes in who has less status and rank in society than you, they can bump you up and you can feel a moment of superiority. Rather than sitting as high as possible and then getting bumped Bumped. down, because then you get shamed rather than honored. And it's it's clever. It's Jesus's way of saying that this ranking system is not the way we're going to operate in my among my people and at my table. But at the same time, it's a revelation of how it worked. That at tables, uh, you invited the most important. Pliny tells this story uh, later that he had apportioned wine, the wine in small decanters of three different kinds. Mm -hmm. Notice that. 
not in order to give his guests their choice, but so that they might not refuse. He had one kind for himself and us. That's the highest level. Mm -hmm. Another for his less distinguished guests, friends, for he is a man who classifies his acquaintances. And a third for his own freedmen, that's slaves who've been set free, but still dependent upon the master and those of his guests. So, I mean, that's a perfect illustration of, you know, it's not from the first century, but first century life is that banquets would pay very close attention to who sat where. Mm -hmm. And look, Chaz, I've been in many settings like that in this world. I've been involved with, with Rotarians. I've been involved in banquets mm -hmm. where you have a prestigious person invited and, and someone has the power to decide who gets to sit with the most prestigious people. Yeah. And then there are uh, schmucks that get to sit at the back of the room and they get to gaze at a distance yeah. uh, and maybe in passing walk by the people of prominence. Jesus wants to turn that all on its head and say, we are all together in this. Uh, people have different gifts, but we are serving one another. And he wanted that to be demonstrated at the table. And I believe that the Apostle Paul is catching on to this when he says in Colossians that there's neither circumcision nor uncircumcision, Jew nor free, barbarian or Scythian, slave nor free. All these things are, um, are, are put together by Jesus and then by Paul into learning to embody that at the table when they fellowship with one another. Uh, they accepted one another as brothers and sisters in Christ, and that was their central identification factor. Yeah, and it's essential to living out our yeah. faith. Uh, I yeah. love that. All right, one one last question, and you know, to wrap things up, we've kind of circled around this um, concept quite a bit. But I think, in a fellowship of difference, you, you talk a great deal about um, meal times and uh, how. As members of the kingdom of following Jesus, we should um, think about our meals in the way that the early church and Jesus calls us to it. And um, in that book, you say Jesus turned routine meals into kingdom realities, which means a new society was being formed around evening dinner tables and people got converted at the tables with Jesus. Could you maybe unpack this a little more and um, take one last chance to, to be able to um, you know, leave us with a thought of, of what the significance is for how we eat together uh, in meals as followers of Jesus. Yeah, I think, I think let's just say we, we need to practice hospitality. All right, so we need to have the intention that we are going to open our homes up to others and we are going to practice going into the homes of others. Or in our world, we, we go out to, together. Uh, you know, I, I'm not saying it has to be inside homes, although that's a little bit more of a comfortable setting. Mm -hmm. Okay, now let's say the second thing is, so let's say the first intention is we need to practice, we need to practice hospitality. The second one is this, we need intentionally to invite people to our table that would normally not be connected with our status or our age so in other words, we need intentionally to in, invite people to eat with who might feel like it's a step up for them. Uh, we need to practice uh, crossing borders and boundaries 
in our table fellowship. So that would be the second thing. The third thing would be this, and this is probably the most important. At the table, we need to embody the equality of life in Christ, Mm -hmm. that we relate to one another not as anything other than brothers and sisters in Christ who are serving a common Lord. Mm -hmm. So that when people come away from the table, they should come away from our table saying, I'm just like Scott. I'm just like Chris. Uh, I'm, you know, they're just like me. Mm-hmm. We're all Christians in this together. Yeah. And I think that is, that is the way we should, that's the sort of society we should create at table. And this whets people's appetite for more kingdom reality. Mm-hmm. And it allows them to experience that kingdom reality in the here and now so that they can pass it on in their own in their own practices. Yeah, or even if they're not a Christian, be yeah. you know, g- generate an appetite for that kingdom reality in their yeah. life that they associate, man, I'm I'm, you know, I'm just the same as Chaz, I'm just the same as Chelsea, or, you know, and and that becomes something that they get the kingdom introduced in their life. Yeah, and, and I didn't even talk about that with crossing boundaries. Yeah, having Eating with people who are not like us includes people who are not Christians. Mm-hmm. And this clearly is what's happened with Jesus. He's, in, he's, he's opening the table to people so that they can experience the embrace of God's grace and allow that embrace to be transformative. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thanks so much for joining us today on uh, our episode about Jesus and the table. I hope it's been helpful for you to think about um, what mealtime was like for Jesus and for the people in the first century. And uh, I hope it's been insightful and challenging for you to think through as a follower of Jesus. What what does your mealtime look like and how should it look like as you see it as opportunities to make kingdom realities in your world that is around you? Thanks again for joining us. Make sure if you haven't had a chance to subscribe to us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast from that you do that um, because we got uh, a bunch of great episodes coming your way about how the kingdom took root then and how it's taking root now. 